Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Susan Neiman. Susan is an American philosopher and writer. She has written extensively on the Enlightenment, moral philosophy, metaphysics, and politics. Her work shows that philosophy is a living force for contemporary thinking and action. After a distinguished career in academia and writing and other things, today she's the director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany. Welcome, Susan. Glad to be here. Yes, I think this will be a very interesting conversation. Today we're going to mostly talk about her recent book titled Woke is Not Left. Other way around, Jim. It's left is not woke, although both are true. How did I do that? Left is not woke. Okay, let's flip it around. Everybody gets it mixed up. And by the way, this is the German and the Dutch cover, which I like very, very much because it basically shows that, you know, I mean, it's they're both true, but there's a reason why I started with left rather than woke, because what I really wanted to do was define what it means to be left today. I think we all have plenty of examples of what woke is in our heads, but we're quite confused about what it means to be left. And that's why I wrote the book. Cool. So left is not woke. All right. She's written nine books in total. And I went through her Amazon page yesterday and I picked out one to add to my reading list called Why Grow Up Subversive Thoughts for an Infantile Age. Doesn't that sound like a useful book? So if you like this podcast, check out some of the other things she's written. So we'll We'll get soon to the definition of left, but before that, let's talk a little bit about woke. You know, there are a number of people, particularly on the left, who don't like the term woke because of its history. And, you know, I know its history, and so do you, but it's become a useful term. So when you say, why did you use that forbidden phrase? And to you, what does woke mean? Look, Nobody likes the word woke. It has simply become a term of abuse. And that just in the last three or four years. So I had to think long and hard about whether or not to use the term because a number of friends of mine said, you're giving aid and comfort to the right. You know, it's people like Ron DeSantis use the word woke. You certainly don't want to be instrumentalized by them. And I thought long and hard about a different title, but in fact, you know, woke does pick out a phenomenon that we all know about. I mean, I've just been reading uh, every time you open the news and that in almost any country that I follow, you'll see an example of it. The two that I was just reading about while sitting at my desk were people complaining that neither Leonard Bernstein nor uh, Golda Meir in two biopics is being played by someone who's Jewish and that therefore there's a problem with that, okay? You know, culture allegedly belongs to one tribe 
tribe or another and only members of that tribe should participate in it or certainly you know represent it and that actually undercuts the force of culture itself okay i mean what culture is meant to do is to teach us or open us i don't want to sound too didactic open us both to the differences between another culture and our common humanity so the the idea that only you know only a member of a tribe can play or read or use culture of that tribe is is really quite problematic okay so that's just one instance of of what woke is woke is um starts with really admirable emotions that I share and that anybody on the liberal left has always shared. That is wanting to be on the side of people who are oppressed, wanting to support people who are marginalized, wanting to make up for historical crimes, or uh, if not if they can't be made up, at least you want to remember them, okay? Those are all left-wing emotions, which is why we get confused about the concept. And the problem is, as I show in the book, that those left-wing emotions are undercut by some very reactionary philosophical assumptions that often people don't even know they're making because the assumptions are so widespread at this point, they've gotten into the water system. I mean, it's, you, you, you cannot open a standard newspaper without seeing one or another of the assumptions that are actually quite reactionary. So that's it, it, there's a sense in which woke is an incoherent concept, although we all know instances of it, even though nobody wants to cop to it. I mean, I, you know, it's it's just a term of abuse. And, and, and I, I did think about using something else. I decided, no, we know what this means. And, and everyone is saying it privately, okay? They are often afraid to say it in public, either afraid of hurting someone's feelings or indeed afraid of having some kind of consequences that could be problematic in their job or in their social life. But people are talking about it everywhere and, and, and in many, many countries. And it may be a phenomenon that started in America, but it's all over the place, okay? This book has already been, in, you know, the translations going on in Brazil, in Korea, uh, in various European countries. It, it is a problem, okay? And, you know, in order not to be co-opted by the Ron DeSantis's or Richie Sunak, Rishi Sunak's of the world, I made some decisions I told my publisher I was not going to go on certain talk shows, even though it meant, you know, definitely meant that the book didn't get around as much. But I didn't want to be on, and they said, well, we know not to put you on Fox. I said, I, you know, I don't want to be on Bill Maher. I don't like the snarky way he makes fun of woke. I'm not making fun of it. I'm trying to offer an empathetic criticism Okay, but I'm not interested in jumping up and down and making fun of people, much less, you know, moving, moving to the right in any way, shape or form. So I say in on the very first page of the book, I don't even consider myself a liberal. I am proud to call myself a leftist and a socialist. 
Now, I live on a continent where the, the, both of those are much easier things to say than liberal, which basically just means libertarian in Europe. But, you know, I'm happy to say it in America, those used to be perfectly reasonable terms to use in America, none other than Albert Einstein, W.B. Du Bois, they were friends. But Einstein, who's always an icon of many things, wrote a book defending socialism at the height of the McCarthy, or the beginning of the McCarthy period. So I would like to make those words acceptable again. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting that you have chosen to contrast, in American terms at least, relatively far left with explicitly opposed to this new phenomena of woke. Because my own politics is too heterodox to try to explain, but if you projected it onto the normal team red, team blue, I'd be somewhere to the left of Bernie Bernie Sanders and more more closer to Peter Krupton or somebody, right? Uh, an anarcho socialist or something. And I actually did work for the Bernie campaign in 2016. No, and, good. Well, I certainly uh, voted for him twice yeah, in the primaries. Yeah, yeah, and, and, but I, uh, I also tell people often that Bernie Sanders is to the right of Angela Merkel, who is a center-right politician, because yeah. in Europe, the kinds of things that even the center-right take for granted on questions of social rights and so on are things that Bernie didn't imagine. But that's a problem of American political life. But yeah, it is far left in the U.S., but I... I did that explicitly because I got tired of hearing the woke referred to, referred to as the far left or the hard left when they're not. Yeah, I, I've tried to make this point several times in online venues that a left perspective and a woke perspective are two separate things, and they do not have to be combined. In fact, I actually got kicked out of a forum I've been a member of for 30 years for making that argument, mm. if you could believe it or not. Whoa. And, and you know, these, these people have become, unfortunately, totally tribal, which we'll talk about in a moment. And anyone who deviates from the tribal form must be burned at the stake. And, and I also then pointed out to them, I don't think this may be any friends either, a historical analogy, which was the left, in the real sense of the left, really got some momentum in the United States in the late 60s, right? And then it went nuts with some of this new left crazy stuff, bombings and rioting's and, and things of that sort. And what was the result? 40 years of conservative <laughs> politics in the United States. We had all conservative presidents from 1968 to 2008. And Obama is sort of borderline. You know, he's not exactly a progressive. He's not exactly a conservative. He's kind of in between. But every single president from 2008 to 2000, from 1968 to 2008 was a conservative. Now, some of them call, some of them called themselves Democrats, like Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, but they were conservatives. In, in European terms, they'd be considered quite right wing, right? That's and right. so I said over, you know, combining true progressivism with crazy ideas just alienates the masses of the people and they reject the progressivism. And I suspect that if the progressives don't wake up and decouple progressivism from wokery, the same thing's going to happen again. I am highly agreed with you. And, and that's really why I wrote this book. Yeah. Just to try and disentangle conceptually, you know, what distinguishes the left from the woke. That was exactly my, my goal. 
Okay, so let's go move into the book. And one of the first comments you make, and I thought it just rang so true, is historically at least, and I would say today should be the case as well, but it's less so when you combine wokery with being left, the right tended to be blood and land, right? Tribalist to the nth degree. Think about Germany. I mean, there's the most vile example of them all, where blood and land tribalism led to one of the great horrors of human history. And the left has historically been the universalists. Talk to us about that distinction, because I think that may be the fundamental distinction here. That it, we're trying it is, to get it's at. A very important. So look, you know, the Nazis were only the the end point of a view that you can only have real connections and therefore only real obligations towards people who belong to your own tribe. And you're absolutely right, blood and soil, really, uh, blood and land, blood and soil is a Nazi expression. But it's certainly one that's been, you know, upheld by conservatives almost forever, okay? Certainly, so let's, let's talk, let's leave aside the differences, you know, in sort of pre-modern times, but certainly in modern times, the idea is that your allegiance is to your tribe and you can't really understand other people, okay? Whereas for people on the left, tribe is the whole world, uh, potentially. And of course, you have certain understandings with people who belong to your tribe and who get your jokes immediately and, you know, understand illusions that you're making. And that's all fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And nobody's denying that on a cultural level, okay? It would be terribly boring if there were no differences between human beings at all makes us robots, okay? But at a political level, the goal is to look for the things that bring people together, look for basic humanity. And one of the ways in which we can actually do that is by entering partly other people's cultures. And of course, you're never going to be able to really get to know all of the different cultures that there are in the world. But my my recommendation is always that you get, that you sort of walk around in at least two. Because if you only try one other culture, you'll always think, well, there's a binary. So Americans do it like this, but the French do it like this. No, you really need two. Preferably one that's you know doesn't speak your native language, so that you're actually forced to learn another language, and in engaging with another culture and another people's history and their music and their literature and their food. But unfortunately, Americans do often tend to just leave it at food. Um, you know, engaging with another culture, you you appreciate all the differences that there are between people, but you also appreciate the common humanity. And that's one of my heroes is the great and alas, mostly forgotten artist and activist Paul Robeson, who I've sometimes called the hero of cultural appropriation, because I mean, a lot of what I just said is straight Paul Robeson, the, the way in which to cultivate solidarity and universalism is to you know, look at, in, in his case, particularly the music and the literature of many cultures, okay? But what you have now, post-colonialists, people who are woke, the 
the border between those two things is is quite porous. Post-colonial theory and, and woke are quite similar, though apparently people don't like to admit to being post-colonial theorists either these days, and I'm not sure why that is. A friend of mine is working on post-colonial theory is going to try and figure it out for me. But the idea is, you know, what is most important is the tribe that you co- that you come from, where tribe is usually defined as either ethnic or gender identity, okay? I don't like the phrase identity politics because it reduces all of our identities to two points, okay? And all of us have lots of identities. I One exercise that I think is useful is for everybody to take a piece of paper and write down 10 identities that they have. When you're with your parents, you know, even if you're an adult, your basic identity is child. You feel it the moment you walk into your parents' house. When you're raising children, your basic identity is parent, okay? People often or usually identify with their profession, not always, but for many people, you know, that's a huge part of their identity. People identify with a political position if they care about politics. If they don't, then that itself is a is a kind of identity. I never understood how people could identify so deeply with a sports team, but for billions of people around the world, <laughs> you know, that is a deep part of their identity is, is you know, who they cheer on and follow. So in, in any case, we all have lots of identities that are important to us. And to reduce them all to our ethnic or gender tribe is, it's not just an impoverishment. It's a very interesting impoverishment because it's the two identities where we have the least agency, okay? Those are identities that we're born into and have very little control over, and they are the ones that involve the most, precisely because they're things that we're born into and don't choose, they are the ones where we're most vulnerable and subject to oppression or discrimination, okay? Now, I understand why we, you know, there was a turn to pay attention to people who were otherwise left behind for thousands of years in the writing of history, people who are the victims of history. And that was a necessary corrective for the ways in which history up to about the middle of the 20th century was written. I don't mean history books, I mean narratives of history, public history, the way that people perceive how things work and you know what moves things along. But We've gone overboard with this and, you know, as in other things, we have, by considering the places where we might be victimized as the most essential parts of our identity, we have stopped focusing on what people do to the world and rather paying attention about what the world does to us one of my, I mean, I have a number of heroes, but one of them is um, Brian Stevenson, who I had the uh, privilege of interviewing for my last book. 
who says, it's one of his lines when he's doing death penalty cases, nobody is, or everybody is more than the worst thing they ever did, okay? And he's right. But in focusing on these two identities, we are focusing on the worst thing that ever happened to us or might happen to us, yeah? The ways in which we've been treated in racist or sexist ways. I'm very far from denying that that happens, okay? First of all, I'm a woman and I experience mildish forms of sexism to this day, okay? Secondly, I have plenty of friends of color and I, you know, with some of them, I would be afraid for them in certain parts of the U.S., for example, okay? So I supported Black Lives Matter. I mean, certainly until it moved in a direction where white people were only allies rather than people who were in solidarity because unarmed black people were being shot, not because they were members of our tribe, but simply because that is a crime against humanity, okay? Yeah, let's see. Well, I've gone on for a while. You probably want to ask me something at this point. Yeah, and uh, now this is a good touch point to the next part that you talked about. And again, regular listeners of the show know that I consider myself, despite it being unfashionable, an enlightenment man right? I still hold true to those values. And you, you make the very strong case that progressivism rightly construed is a child of the Enlightenment. And, Absolutely. Yeah, could you, let's make that case for us. Sure. So I don't know what circles you, you travel in, Jim, but in, unfortunately, in a lot of the circles that I travel in, and in more than one country, say the word enlightenment, and somebody says back to you, white, racist, Eurocentric, patriarchal hogwash, okay? And this is, this is a line that comes from post-colonial theory, the idea that the universalism in particular of the Enlightenment, but also other features of the Enlightenment, were the attempt to disguise particular interests in domination and colonialism by saying that these were universal values when they were only white Eurocentric values. I first heard that claim, oh, about 20 years ago, and I thought it was so ridiculous that I didn't even bother to attack it. I thought it was going to go away pretty quickly because it's just so, it's not just historically false, it turns the Enlightenment upside down. The post-colonial or the woke claim that we should look at other parts of the world besides Europe when we're thinking about the world is a claim that itself comes from the Enlightenment. It was an Enlightenment trope. Okay, starting with Montesquieu's The Persians, there was, you have a whole raft of books in which people use either fictional or actual non-Europeans to criticize things in Europe that you could get burned at the stake for saying if you said in your own voice. So you could publish a book, that, oh, well, you know, criticizing the patriarchy you know, that condemned women who had children out of wedlock to, you know, the horrible fates. 
oh, well, these are the crazy Tahitians who were saying this, or somebody who's condemning private property relations in Europe. Oh, well, those are those silly Algonquins or Hurons in North America, okay? But these were very conscious tropes that you see from the beginning of the Enlightenment on, hey, guys, look at the world from the perspective of other people. The quickest way to find places like that is in Voltaire's Candide, which is actually a quite wonderful book that people don't, you know, read carefully enough because you see an absolute condemnation of Eurocentrism, you see an absolute condemnation of colonialism and slavery in Voltaire's Candide, which is really, it's not Kant, it's an easy book to read, you know? Fun book, it's kind of silly, but it's fun. <laughs> no, it's uh, actually, got some, it's a serious book, too. Yeah. I've read about that in one of my books, my book on evil. I have to go, maybe I'll reread it, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's funny, I, I make the same point. I said, think of the high enlightenment writers like Diderot and Voltaire. These were some of the first thinkers in the world, full stop, to really consider seriously the epistemological, metaphysical, and historical lives of other people, India, China, you know, the Middle East, etc. And I can tell you those countries were not interested in putting their feet into the shoes of other people. This was an enlightenment philosophy. And of course, the other big critique, and, and this is a, a, a partially legitimate critique, right? The, the greatest, highest statement, I would argue, of the enlightenment was Thomas Jefferson saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, written by a slaveholder, right? Obviously hypocritical. And he only talks about men. In fact, there's a great correspondence between he and Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife. And it turns out Abigail Adams is actually a lot smarter than John Adams, right? I got John, it, Ab yeah. Yeah, John Adams is a smart guy, too. He wrote some serious treatises on political philosophy. But Abigail was way beyond him. And, and she had no rights at all, basically, right? Or very few. So yes, 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 these, this great line, all men are created equal, was freighted with hypocrisy, but it was a stake in the ground from which so much has come. So it's let's make a distinction between normative and descriptive claims. Normative are claims about how things should be. Descriptive is a claim about how things are, okay? Now, Jefferson must have felt guilty about owning slaves, including, you know, several who were his own children, because he wrote towards the end of his life this marvelous line, I tremble when I think that God is just, okay? And, you know, whether he was actually foreseeing the Civil War or not, we don't know, okay? But he knew, some piece of him knew that he was not living up to his own ideals. But the fact that you don't live up to your own ideals does not damage the ideals themselves, okay? The ideals are there. And very few people live up to their own ideals. The other thing that people forget, though, about the Enlightenment, it's not the case of Jefferson, but it's certainly the case of Diderot and Kant and Voltaire, they were left-wing intellectuals, okay? They were criticizing existing relations, and they didn't always win, you know? Like, we don't always win, okay? But they were putting ideas in the world that, you know, needed to be there so that eventually, and maybe it, you know, took a century or two, eventually 
they might be realized. Now, they were almost all terrible about women, okay? They're just, you know, one just has to accept that. The only way in which I can understand how, you know, they could insist that European men and non-European men were fundamentally the same and had the same kinds of rights and not really notice it about the woman who they were often, you know, living with. And both Voltaire and Diderot, by the way, were loved some very smart women, okay? So yeah, who was the woman that Voltaire lived with on and off for many years and she was extraordinarily capable, right? Yeah, and absolutely. The, she was translating Newton and, you know, all kinds of But how could they not notice that, you know, these people were fundamentally, you know, equal to them? And the only way that I've been able to understand this a little bit is that in an era before birth control where in order to where the you know i forget exactly what the rate of infant mortality was but it was huge it was Just close to like, 50 50% by age of 5 uh, okay as you know and the maternal mortality wasn't quite as bad but it was bad and in order about one per, about 1% and here's here's the it was in Western Europe. It was about one percent, and and people say, "Well, that doesn't seem so bad." Let me tell you what that's equal to. That's about equivalent to the risk of being a astronaut on the space shuttle. So it's damn dangerous, <laughs> especially because yeah. you probably you probably had nine or ten kids, so you had a ten percent well, chance to, of because half of them, half of them, or yeah, you know, a large number of them died in childhood. Okay, so procreating and bearing children was a, such a big part of most women's lives, unless they lived in a monastery or a nunnery that you could see that it might be hard to imagine that women could have the same rights and responsibilities as men. And as a matter of fact, Voltaire's lover, Emily de Châtelet, did die in childbirth, okay? So there you have it. But I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not apologizing for the sexism. I'm only trying to understand it. But to deprive myself of the of the insights and the groundwork that these rather sexist guys gave the world that feminists could build on in later ages would be ridiculous. Yep. By the way, Diderot, I once as a as an exercise, I thought about trying to take excerpts of Diderot and put them next to excerpts of Franz Fanon and ask the reader to guess who was who. And <laughs> the problem is the dead giveaway is the poisoned arrows. Diderot talks about poisoned arrows, but except for the poisoned arrows with which he is urging the um, native South Africans to drive or to kill, literally to kill the Dutch East India Company that's trying to settle there, with the exception of, of the poisoned arrows, you, Diderot sounds more furiously radical than Fanon. Interesting. And okay, let's go on to another topic from the Enlightenment that I still consider to be hugely important and a goodly faction of the Wokies, particularly the theory Wokies like to attack, 
which is reason, right? You know, finally, finally, I sometimes call the enlightenment childhood's end. We finally were willing to take all of our fairy stories as explanations of why the universe was here and how to behave, etc., and say, we can use reason to make progress in the world. And of course, reason is not unlimited in its efficacy. Kant laid that out pretty well, right? Exactly. But, but reason is an extraordinarily powerful solvent of nonsense. And many of today's Wokies reject reason as some blah, 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 blah. Talk about that a little bit for us, if you would. Sure. Well, the argument, you know, and again, this is post-colonial theory and quite a number of people is, you know, that reason, again, is an instrument of violence, okay? Violence against nature, but also violence against other people. I must say I have a really hard time understanding this, except that it you know, for the fact that it depends on a very impoverished version of reason, of reason as a sort of technological instrument, okay, that's only good for instrumental purposes and calculating and so on. Even instrumentally, you know, the the reason, the technological reason that allowed us to expand uh, human life beyond 40 years, it'll give us 40 more years in order to complain about it. It's uh, <laughs> something that would be hard to deny or, you know, that created washing machines that saved millions of women from spending their lives simply doing laundry, which, you know, took up a great deal of time. All of those things were certainly helped to expand human possibility and expand human freedom, which was always the goal of reason, okay? Reason was never against nature, which is what the, you know, the Wokies or the post-colonialists sometimes claim, but it is something that you can use to ask whether something is natural or not. And all forms of repressive government, um, whether they're supported by a particular religion or whether they're supported simply by a political hierarchy, want people to believe that the current order is a natural one, okay? But what? look at what counts as natural in the 18th century. Slavery, the subjection of women, feudal hierarchies, most forms of illness, and the Enlightenment introduces reason, not to say that it's overwhelming or that it's infallible, but to say everyone is born with the same potential for reason and everyone has the right to speak. And it is not the church and it's not the aristocracy which tells you what to think. Now, today it's less the church or the aristocracy in most places, but you know you can look at a lot of neoliberal economists, for example, who simply say you know there is no alternative. This is the way that things are, and look at them as you know the people who are insisting that we adopt ideologies without question because that's just natural. And the question that we can always ask if we use our own reason is: Wait, 
Natural? What does that mean? Can you not imagine another possibility? Have there been other societies that work differently? And so on. Yeah, the, uh, you know, of course, Hume slayed the is-ought fallacy, and yet it's still with us all these years later. <laughs> well, I actually, I'm, I, you know, this may be too technical a conversation to go into at any length. I don't actually think that Hume belongs to the Enlightenment. I think he is falsely counted to the Enlightenment. A lot of people are surprised when I say this. Why do I say this? Hume says human reason is impotent, and it's a slave to the passions. Okay. Hume is a Tory, okay, who is perfectly happy to not question the order that exists and is perfectly happy for there to be classes who are simply fooled by this religious nonsense that he doesn't believe in. So really the only reason that people count Hume to the Enlightenment, although he writes beautiful prose, there's no question about that. It's it's very seductive prose, and it seems extremely reasonable. Is but the only reason, as far as content goes, that he's counted to the Enlightenment is because of his attack on religion. All right, and I don't think that that is central as central to the Enlightenment as other people do. Certainly, attacks on religious dogma is. But the the way that Hume's, Hume goes about it, I think, is not necessarily, well, not even necessarily. I don't think it's it shows a real enlightenment spirit. Yeah, probably not fully, but I will say that, I, in my own view, the necessary, though perhaps not sufficient, condition of enlightenment is to cast off from religious dogma, right? If you live in a world where religious dogma is the final authority, you are not an enlightenment person. Yeah. I I mean, I agree with you about that, but emphasis on the dogma, okay? Right. Right. Because it's it's simply not true. A lot of the, I mean, even Voltaire, who loved to scoff at at you know any example of religion, Voltaire was a deist, okay, yeah, and he you know he holds gratitude towards the Creator to be you know a fundamental virtue. Okay, there's a wonderful scene where he's described as going up to the top of one of the Alps at sunrise with a friend. And he looks at the sunrise and he says, I believe, great God, I believe. And then he says, as for Monsieur the son and Madame his mother, that's another story, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I put uh, Voltaire's religion in the same class with Einstein's and Spinoza's, essentially. Yeah, that's right. But but they both, they're definitely all, in some deep sense, religious in a way that, I don't know, Richard Dawkins or David Hume cannot understand. Yeah, that is true. That is true. That's a very useful distinction. So now let's move on to another issue. And this is something you did not address. Wait, can I just say one more thing about reason? So if you destroy reason, I mean, if you think of it as an instrument of violence and you don't take it, I mean, you, you either don't take it seriously, you think it's something hypocritical, or you even think it's violence. What do you have left when you're trying to communicate with other human beings. Sheer subjectivity, okay? And there we go to this, you know, feature of woke that I and other people find extremely problematic. 
It used to be called ad hominem, and now it's called positionality. So what is important is, you know, which tribe a speaker comes from and not the content of her arguments. And, you know, so the the rejection of reason is very much caught up with this whole idea of, of tribalism, okay, because... You know, if you don't believe that there's a form of communication that can reach anybody potentially, and that is actually persuasion and not simply, this is my truth. I mean, this is my truth is a real problematic statement, (laughs) but it's become very widespread. You know, if you don't believe that there's a form of communication and reasoning that everyone can participate in, you know, all you have is, well, my truth is I'm speaking as a such and such. This is my opinion. And that's all you've got. Yeah, and that's very, very dangerous, right? And uh, two other ways that this is often packaged in the wokey discourse, one of them is the idea of lived experience, right? Yeah, well, that's one. And, yeah, and subjectivity is important, and one can never challenge somebody else's subjectivity, but both reason and data can refute aspects of lived experience. For instance, my beloved seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Williams, he challenges like the second day of school to say, prove the earth is round and not flat. And it turns out that it is rather difficult to do that from everyday experience. And ever since then, I've been looking for examples, and I've only seen six or seven in my everyday life in what has got to be now, what, 50-some years. And so if you say lived experience is the arbitrator of all things, then the earth is flat for most people. (laughs) That's 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 a great example. Very good. I'm going to borrow that one. Yeah, feel free. The other one that I still cringe, I guess I've heard it so many times now, I don't cringe as much, but this this term looks like me. Ah, Thank you. (laughs) That when I hear that, I first started hearing it about 20 years ago, I said, that's an extremely racist thing to say, right? That somehow the authority of some source has something to do with people who look like me. When I was a kid, I was a real science nerd. And my heroes were people like Leo Slazard, you know, fuzzy-faced Central European Jews, right? Didn't look anything like me or my redneck father or the uh, Southerners I grew up with. And if I had said, if I wanted to, you know, listen to their bullshit, I could have done that for free. But the people that I really respected, I had to read these difficult books when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And it would have been a huge loss for me to only listen to people who looked like me. I hate that term. I do too. And that's very interesting. That's another good example. I I hate it because once again, I feel like it's so simple, you know, and, well, it's very childlike, you know, and, and people often use it. Oh, my daughter was so happy to see, you know, somebody who looks like her. And I I just say, well, on which dimension? Are we really only talking about skin color? You know, and when a child looks at people, I mean, it's very childlike language. It's like about the level of a three or a four-year-old. I raised three children, so I still have some rough idea of, you know, stages of development. And it's not at all clear that when a three- or four-year-old looks at someone, the first thing they see is skin color. They could see, you know, there's a point at which 
children never really believe that they're going to grow up into adults because the adults are so much bigger, like, and they can do all these different things. So how does that person look like? You know, but you could, is it taller or shorter? Is it fatter or thinner? Is it, you know, there are all kinds of dimensions and does seem, once again, very silly to insist that this one dimension is the dimension that matters. But I agree with you. If we only learned from people who look like us, our worlds would be impoverished, as they often are when... Yeah, I would be a backward redneck like the people I grew up with, right? Why would I want to do that, right? <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Grew up in the working class suburb of Washington, D.C., Prince George's County. And okay. you say, that doesn't sound too backward. Our part was pretty backward. Let me No, I spent a little bit of time, and now I am, I've actually blocked the name of the county that we were in. I hated it so much. Was it near Ellicott City? Okay. That would have been probably Howard County. Howard County, thank you. Yeah, no, that were, I mean, the high school that I, I dropped out of high school, the high school that I was sent to, you know, I think 2% of the graduates ever went on to any form of higher education, including vocational and technical school. So I saw some rednecks in the Baltimore, Washington corner. Yeah, yeah. My high school, about 20% went on to a four-year college. About that another was better 20%. than Howard County. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and, uh, and I also looked up later in some of the census data in my zip code, 1970, about the time I graduated from high school, half the 49% of the parents were high school school dropouts, 49% of the adults were high school graduates, and 2% had college degrees. So it was definitely not a fancy place, but it's neither here nor there. I, I worship my fuzzy-faced Central European Jews, and look what happened, right? And that's just the, the way, you know, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I don't want to be a redneck, you know? Yeah. I want to be a person that understands quantum physics in a fairly deep way. I want to understand, you know, the history of Central Europe and all the crazy thing that's, things that have happened there over the last 2,000 years. But anyway, neither here and there. Now, I do have one thing I want to push back on a little bit. We've been in, okay. in, in kind of riotous agreement so far, which is I, I generally don't bring on authors who I fundamentally disagree with, but I always do push back on where I think there's a pushback necessary. And that is where you talk very right about rightly about reason. You don't mention the second big part that came from the Enlightenment, and that's data and empiricism. Uh, now we had data and empiricism before, but you know, think about people like Jefferson, I mean, not Jeff, Franklin, Ben Franklin, you know, one of the great scientists of the era, and there were many others. Adam Smith actually was a, a great empiricist, and then later, of course, Darwin was one of the great inductive empiricists. His theory of evolution came from 40 years of very careful, autistic almost study of the details of, of nature. And so data is combined with reason is actually our universal solvent. And I'm going to suggest that because you haven't used the data lens quite as much, you were fooled by Black Lives Matter. It no, turns out, let me make the case and then you can rebut it. If you look at the data, now it is true for sure that, and this is documented uh, well, that on average, black people are treated worse than white people by the police, right? That's a thing, right? And there's very little doubt it's true, but it's not true that they're killed 
at a higher rate than you would think. For instance, if you look at the Washington Post database of police shootings, the ratio of blacks to whites, and it's actually considerably more whites than blacks, is identical to the ratio of criminal suspects and defendants, et cetera. Exactly, to the decimal point. And then we say, all right, well, what about the details? Well, very well done studies by a guy named Roland Fryer at Harvard. He was the youngest African-American ever to be awarded tenure at Harvard, dug into what actually goes on in a number of police departments, and he shocked the world, and including himself. And he basically said it was the most surprising result of his career and not what he was expecting, that per encounter with the police, white people are more likely to be shot by the police than Hispanics or blacks, and that black and Hispanic police officers are more likely to shoot black suspects than our white police officers. So the fundamental argument of Black Lives Matter turns out to actually not be true, if you look at the data. uh, Yeah, I have seen some of that data, and I would push back in two ways. The first is the main way in which I see myself as being having white privilege is that I never had to give my children the talk, okay? That is, you know, that is something that every black parent has to do. And, you know, if you're a parent, you worry about all kinds of stuff. You have all kinds of things. You you cannot protect your children against all kinds of things. You do not worry if you're white um, about your child being hurt by a police officer. And that is also a matter of data. I mean, I have a friend of color uh, who's also Jewish who keeps trying to say, you know, why are you taking the t- taking the line that Jews are white? I said, look, when I was a kid growing up in the South, we weren't really. But at this point, the difference between me and you is I would worry about you in some neighbor neighborhoods of the U.S. and I would not worry about myself, okay? So I think there's a burden even if the data show that you know the encounters do not turn out to be more deadly, I have seen over and over, frankly, police abuse, even if I've never seen anybody shot by the police, treat people of color with more disrespect and more suspicion than white people are treated. So that's number one, okay? Number two, however, is you guessed just a little bit wrong because you you don't know the rest of my work, which is fine. There's no reason why you should. But I wrote a book in 2008 called Moral Clarity. And Moral Clarity was meant to be the last time I wrote about a defense of the Enlightenment, okay? And in there, I talk at great length. It's a much longer book than this about a lot of the, you know, attacks that were being made on the Enlightenment up through, I guess I finished in 2007, I did not take this attack seriously, that the Enlightenment was the source of, you know, Eurocentrism and colonialism. I just didn't discuss it. I discussed everything else. I go into, you know, concept of reason in great detail and data and all all kinds of things that I only touched on here very you know, briefly or not at all because I'd already written about it. There's always a, if you're an author who writes a fair amount, you always are trying to strike a balance because on the one hand, you, you know, I there's almost nobody who's 
all of whose books I've read. So I don't expect, you know, that any reader of one book has read any of the others. But then there are some people who do, and you don't want to bore them by <laughs> by repeating the same stuff over and over. So it's tricky. But no, I'm all for empirical data. I'm absolutely. It's just that in the attacks that you're getting on the Enlightenment as an instrument of colonialist violence, I don't, nobody's really attacking data. They're attacking some conception of reason. And, uh, I don't so know. I've, uh, I've actually brought forth these examples of data about Black Lives Matter, and it gets uh, just totally rejected with spurious arguments, totally yeah. spurious arguments, but are also refuted elsewhere. And uh, another famous example is there was a polling done quite recently on how many unarmed black men do you believe are shot by the police in, in the United States each year? And from the far left, there were numbers as high as 10,000. A number of people had estimated 1,000. You got a noticeable percentage were up at 1,000, like 20%. And the actual number is about 14, right? And Yeah, but I've got a protest here, Jim. I like you. We just met. I've, so I don't know, any, you know much of anything about you. But I've got a protest, if I may say so, at the smiles with which you say that, okay? Because violence and suspicion towards people of color is a very real thing. Even if the, you know, statistics about police violence have been misread and misinterpreted. And I don't think that we have any cause to to mock that phenomenon. I just have too many friends, you know, who have been treated by the police in ways that I would not be treated. And I have to take that seriously. In the same way, I was just having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine who's a man who finds it a hard time really believing some of the sexist stuff that I have to put up with sometimes. And, you know, it's only there's just an example after example, it's in print. Look, they say this about me. They would never, you know, okay, okay, I get it. And I, I don't want to discount it, even if I find it hard to believe. So I, I think we should be careful there. No, and I will say, I said right up front, the evidence is clear. Police, police mistreat blacks at a higher rate than they mistreat whites. And in fact, I was about to say, Roland Fryer's research validates that. So what I'm making is an argument that we need to be honest when we speak and look at the data and not, frankly, lie about things that are just not true for essentially propagandistic purposes. And I got another example, but I'm, we're going to move on. We have, we have only a limited amount of time here. I want to get to the, the, the next mild pushback, but it might not be a pushback. It may just be a language issue, which is, I think we both agree on universal humanism as the alternative to tribalism. However, in my own formulations, and in fact, I've been working on and off on an essay for Quillet magazine that Claire Lehman wants me to write. I've written a few things for them, and we have agreed to do this article for them, where I push for what I call liberal universal humanism. And I position it as the alternative to alt-right and wokery. And I find liberal to be important. And here's, I mean, here's help me build the story up a little bit. Because other forms of universal humanism that we're aware of include things like Catholicism, 
right? The majority of Catholics are now not white people, right? And the rising hierarchy of the Catholic Church is all African, right? It's all African. And the Catholic Church will be an African church within a, within a generation or two. The other religion famous for its universalism is Islam, particularly Sunni Islam. People of every shape, color, nationality, ethnicity, etc., can be is, Islam and be members of the what's they call it, the Ummah, I think, the, the body of Islam. And they're absolutely sincere about it, and it works. But neither Catholicism nor Islam is liberal in that they have a tight box that you have to be in to be accepted into their universality. And so I use liberal in the Thomas Jefferson sense, not in the right wing or libertarian European sense of liberal universal humanism to indicate universal humanism that transcends any arbitrary boundary of religion, gender, sexual orientation, etc., and really does try to live up to the initially hypocritical but eventually very powerful solvent of all people. All people are equal. So why did you not use liberal? Well, <laughs> for a bunch of reasons, maybe because you'll remember this, we're uh, roughly the same age, I think. I remember the, I think it was Phil Oaks, the song "Love Me, I'm a Liberal." I mean, that's 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 what I grew up with, and you know, liberals were the people who thought Dr. King was probably doing a good thing, although they didn't necessarily you know, risk anything themselves, but they really thought he went too far when he started criticizing the war in Vietnam. I mean, that was the liberal position that I grew up with, okay? And I, you know, inclined, I mean, I, that is literally the home that I grew up in, but then as I, you know, grew, and I'm grateful that my mother actually was somebody who risked quite a bit during the civil rights movement, and that had a, a deep impact on me. But I can also remember her saying how awful it was that King was criticizing the war in Vietnam. And, you know, this was, and, you know, I, I was moving towards a much more socialist position myself. But, you know, I've, I've spent more of my adult life outside the U.S. than in it. And it's a real commentary on American politics being so far to the right of the rest of the world that liberal just doesn't mean the same thing in, say, Europe as it or, or India as it means in the United States, okay? It, it really means libertarian, you know, roughly that you believe in a neoliberal economy and you don't mind gay people. It's about, or you, you know, you can you can live with marriage equality. That's what liberal means for the rest of the world. It's not what it means in England. It's not what it means in Israel. It's not what it means in Germany, or et cetera, et cetera, or India, or wherever. So, I have been influenced by a more international outlook. I mean, you're you're discussing the. I, I mean, I might be able to live, I could live with democratic as long as one understands it properly because neither Islam nor the Catholic Church are democratic organizations. You're right to say that they're universal, but they're extremely hierarchical. There's a set of laws, you follow them or not. There are a set of authorities, and of course the, the 
Catholic churches at least has a relatively clear hierarchy. I happen to be a fan of Pope Francis, but I know that there are, you know, people in the church who absolutely hate him. Moreover, I've been told that one reason why he, by Italians who know this, one reason why he eats in the common communal dining room and not in the fancy Pope's quarters is that there's less chance of getting poisoned that way. I mean, oh, I like real that. Enemies. I like that. I like that. Okay? That's good. I mean, yes, he is very democratic and non-hierarchical as 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 far as it goes. So, but but we all know Francis is an exception. Normally, the Catholic Church is extremely autocratic, and to some degree, with different seats of religious authority, so is Islam. So. Yeah, there. I would. I would. I'm not sure. I democratic. I'm not not so sure works for what I would be trying to express because it's perfectly possible. We we've had it in the United States. You could have a democratic tyranny, right? Where we had Trump that he got got in through the democratic process, and we may well get that ass clown oh, back yeah. in there again. <laughs> Look, I, I know that, and I'm extremely concerned about it, but that's why I wouldn't call it democratic. I mean, the Nazis got into power through a democratic election, and then they, you know, destroyed all um, democratic procedures. So, so that's, you know, simply the abuse of democratic structures in order to establish fascism doesn't make you a Democrat. It's an yeah, abuse it's a, of yeah, democratic. So that's why I would say democratic universal humanism doesn't quite get it all the way for me. I can see your point about liberal partially, though keep in mind that the you know the second half of the European liberal, that they are actually freedom loving about personal behavior is you know what I'm pushing at with my term liberal. I don't load that with any assumption one way or the other about means of production, how it should be organized. As I said, my own my own views on that are extremely radical left, more uh, anarcho-syndicalist than they are socialist or capitalist, but certainly not capitalist. So I think we probably agree when we when we say when we're talking about universal humanism, but I but I did want to make the distinction between universal humanism that is not liberal or freedom enhancing and whether we what we're, we're what additional term we want to use for that i'm not 100 percent sure okay we can we can split that difference i just i i just would never call myself a liberal and that's partly thanks to my childhood or youth in which liberal really was at least in the left-wing circles that I was attracted to. It was not a nice thing to be. And so that it's still shocking to me that it should be so frightening in America that it, you know, people will talk about the L world uh, word. And I I don't know what the percentage is of people who admit to the sin of being liberal, but it's like 17% the last time I saw a poll. But it's just, again, it shows how out of step America is with the rest of the world. And I'm keen on bringing back old-fashioned terms like left and socialist, which were once a part of American political life. We used to have a socialist party, right? We've got we Eugene Debs got got quite a few millions of votes, right? All right, let's move on to you know sort of back to where we were, and I think this is again getting close to the meat of the argument is that the Wokies and their fellow travelers seem to be have embraced identitarianism in a very strong way 
And that is the opposite of universalism, at least so it seems to me. Well, yeah, that's what I said in starting, which is why I don't use the word identitarian or identity politics, because it's a reduction of our very, you know, varied identities down to two things. Yes. Yeah. And that, and what is it that the identitarianisms are not seeing? What is it that makes them, because at one level, as you say, a lot of them are from the progressive side and one sort of assumes people who have moved to the progressive side do so for essentially humanitarian reasons for the good of humanity etc and yet they've somehow gotten locked into these identitarian stances any any thoughts about what's that what oh, that's I've all got about? A lot of thoughts. look i think the important date is 1991 i think that the end of the Cold War and the triumph of neoliberalism left most people on the left in a state of shock and despair. So that rather than having the kind of international, serious, reflective conversation, what went wrong with state socialism? I mean, it's silly to think that there's only one form of socialism because there are many forms of capitalism and there could be many forms of socialism. But instead of sitting down analytically and saying, okay, what went wrong? You suddenly had people, I mean, I know many people who spent decades of their lives arguing about whether they were, you know, Maoists or Trotskyists or, you know, this or that, suddenly say, oh yeah, it was always wrong. I knew it all along. It led straight to the gulag. That's that. So what was left? We had no more. I mean, one thing that state socialism was, well, not state socialism, because that of course was Stalinism. And, you know, Trotsky said you couldn't have socialism in one country. And Trotsky was right about anything. If history's shown anything that Trotsky was right about, it's that. You can't have socialism in one country because it is such a threat to other countries that they will do what they can. I mean, you know, Reagan was very clear about it. He said, we're going to kill them by making them, oh, we're going to kill them, we're going to win by making them ruin their entire economies by putting all their money into weapons, okay? Because we're going to up the weaponry and so they will have to. I mean, that was a very conscious, you know, strategy of Reagan and company, okay? So, but what socialism was initially as an idea was a an idea of universal justice and you know relative equality at least not great inequality between people and a huge sense of universalism you know it's interesting i went to i run this think tank and public public think tank uh in right outside berlin in what used to be east germany and I wanted somebody to talk about the Korean War and how it was affecting politics with, you know, at the moment with North Korea. So I invite somebody who's an expert. He's a Korean and he's an expert on Korean history at Oxford. And the first thing he does is I want to thank the people of East Germany because right after the war, when our cities were completely destroyed by American bombs 
It was East German engineers who came and helped us build up our country again. Now, this is not somebody who's supporting Kim Jong-un, okay, by any means whatsoever, or the dictatorship of North Korea, but he remembered the universalism that sent people all over the place to try and support countries that were developing or that had been destroyed by war or whatever, okay? But those kinds of big projects suddenly seemed in 1991 to have been unmasked or doomed by the failure of state socialism. So anybody who wanted to be left had no universalist project left anymore. What they could do is focus on particular instances of discrimination and injustice, and they were there to be focused on. I mean, there's plenty of racism, plenty of sexism, plenty of homophobic behavior to focus on. And that started, I, I, I mean, I understand that perhaps 1991 was such a big shock to people that maybe they needed a moment to settle and, you know, couldn't actually reflect. But that became very self-serving. And I think we're living in a Cold War that's much worse, actually, than things were in the 50s and 60s. Because in the 50s and 60s, most everybody knew someone who actually was a socialist, all right? They probably knew people who were communists. And the impression that you now get, which is that socialism and uh, fascism are you know, versions of the same thing, um, which has just you know, turned people to, um, you know, not to think of them as live alternatives in one form or another is very hard. Do you know that the Paul Robeson House and Archive, well, it's the house in Philadelphia, does not on principle, and there's one in Princeton as well, use the word socialist about Paul Robeson? The recent Robeson research, the books that come out on him, he happens to be a figure I've worked on a lot, portray him as a black nationalist, which is the last thing that he was. But it's so awful to be called a socialist that they don't want to use the term together with Robeson, if they're defending Robeson, or never with Albert Einstein. I mean, this never gets used together. People think of him as a kind of a space cadet, you know, who, who was very smart, but unworldly. He was a very savvy political activist, okay, and, and a socialist. So what that comes down to is actually Paul Robeson is much more blacklisted in memory than he was during the 50s when his passport was taken away from him. And W.B. Du Bois called him the most famous American in the world, which he was, if you take the whole world into consideration. So anyway, that's, that's how I think we got to the point where you know, all that seemed available if you wanted to be on the left were focusing on particular instances of discrimination, but there was no way that you could, 
you know, there, nobody could, we could no longer imagine a universalist project, which is particularly sad because if we don't get a universalist project together very soon, the planet will be destroyed. It cannot be taken care of in tribalist terms. Anyway, we're, we're running up towards, at least on my clock, we're running up towards all the time that I have. Did you have particularly burning questions that you want to yeah, ask tonight? Yeah, two more. Yeah, two more. Okay. One, when we see the turn that woke has taken under the influence of the French nihilist philosophers and psychoanalysts and what have you, it essentially rejects moral arguments and reduces everything to power dynamics. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh God, yeah. I have to say, I'm getting I'm getting fairly talked out soon, so I'm going to have to make it brief. This is a very old idea that any moral idea or political idea that claims to be more than power politics is a scam that's trying to convince us all to bow to some powerful person who's trying to increase his power. I talk about the book, this idea goes all the way back to Plato's Republic, where you have a, a young sophist who sounds, you know, like a simple version of Michel Foucault, say. And the problem is, with those kinds of arguments, they come up again and again. History gives us enough examples of events that were said to be, you know, undertaken for some good reason, and in fact were simply undertaken to increase the power of the person who was doing them. We all probably have examples in our own lives, but think about the war in Iraq, which was allegedly taken, you know, to create democracy, spread democracy in the Middle East, and it was perfectly clear from the very beginning that this was not George W.'s major interest, okay? He was talking about hegemony. He was talking, hoping for control of oil supplies. He was not uh, interested in spreading democracy. So you see cases like that, and it's then very easy to say, so it's all a bunch of hooey, okay? Anytime somebody makes a claim to be fighting a good war or putting themselves out for a good cause, what they're really trying to do is increase their own power. And this is a sort of thing that gets supported, interestingly enough, by nihilistic philosophers like Foucault. Interestingly enough, Edward Said said that of Foucault towards the end of his life, which is quite interesting. But you also see it in an ideology that we no longer even think of as an ideology because it's in the water supply, and that's evolutionary psychology. Not evolutionary biology, but evolutionary psychology, which traces all of, explains, thinks and explains all of our actions by reference to what our hypothetical ancestors 200,000 years ago did in order to survive. And, you know, everybody would like some kind of definition of the essence of human nature. People have been 
arguing about it. Philosophers have been, been arguing about it for thousands of years. And along come evolutionary psychologists and say, hey, we're not just speculating. We're telling you what the science is. It's not science. It's speculation. Ask an archaeologist how much you can actually know about what people 200,000 years ago did. There's no writing. There's no written records. Okay. There's some thin archaeological evidence that you can find certain things out about, but not a whole lot. I mean, this leaves aside the question of whether people who you know, live 200,000 years ago are exactly the same as we are after all that history has, you know, given us. But, but people take it to be absolutely scientifically solid. And it's very hard to open a newspaper without seeing, oh, here's an explanation, you know, so-and-so did this because... Your Stone our, Age brain, right? That's okay, the... Uh, that's right, that's right. And, yeah, and, yeah. and so, you know, our, our Stone Age brain is appealed to for the same set of explanations, namely, you know, this is all power and people don't actually do anything for any other reasons. And what you think is altruism, this is the evolutionary psychologist's um, problem of, of altruism, right? I mean, altruism is not a problem, but they make it a problem because it's a problem for their theory. How do you explain altruism? Well, you know, it could have been adap evolutionarily adaptive, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I talk about this in the book, but it, people don't quite have the nerve to criticize this or to see how deeply the ideology affects us because if you talk to somebody like Steven Pinker, which I've done, you quickly get this sort of, wait a minute, are you one of those, you know, idiots who doesn't believe in Darwin? Okay. Are you, you know, are, are you a creationist? By the way, Darwin did not believe in evolutionary psychology. Okay. He believed in evolution, but he did not, you know, make the kinds of claims that evolutionary psychologists made. But of course we can all get intimidated by that, especially if we're not biologists. I'm not, but that was one of the chapters on which I really sought the advice of some several people whom I know are and know this stuff called. And I said, am I wrong? Am I wrong? This seems so. And they went over the material. And, you know, I, I, I had always, I'd always felt this about evolutionary psychology, but I, and, and there are some other people who have made those arguments, but they're usually in books that are thick and rather complicated and appealed, you know, use equations and, and the things that and most ordinary readers are not going to push through. So anyway. Interesting. Two more points and then we'll let you go. You said one more. You said two more. <laughs> well, I, two, I had two questions, one point and one more question. My okay. point my point is about this view that everything is power. And when I read this in the woke from the wokes, my first thought was, hmm, your opponents better not believe that or you're in trouble, right? If we all believe it's just power, why don't all the white people get together and slaughter all the non-white people? They could. And so if we take the wokes seriously that it's all power, what they're basically inviting is a war to the death between ethnicities. How could that possibly be a good thing? I agree with you. And yeah, I quote, what's his name? Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart. 
and another of these right-wing, Mike Chernovitz, as saying, you know, I read Lacan in college and, you know, I, this is, you know, I know how to use this stuff. So, yes, you're absolutely yeah, okay. right. They already, some of the right already has discovered this. Yeah, that's I mean, not good. That's not what we want. It's the exact opposite one. All right, let's exit on a hopeful, I would call it a hopeful note, which is you made a very nice distinction between hope and optimism, and then I put in parentheses, pessimism. Talk about hope, and, and what does hope mean to you in this context? Well, it's pretty easy. Optimism and pessimism are statements of fact, okay? The world is going to hell in the handbasket, okay? What a pessimist would say. An optimist would say, the facts are like this. Things have gotten better and better, and they're going to keep getting better and better, and uh, so on. So I am totally not an optimist. I think the world looks terrible right now, and you know, in many different ways. But I accept Kant's argument that hope is not a statement of fact. It's sorry, I mean Kant argues it's not an emotion; it's a moral obligation. Because if we stop hoping, we will become resigned. We will not be able to contribute to the world, maybe not going to hell in a handbasket. And therefore, we have a duty to hope. And Noam Chomsky made the same argument to me. He didn't know that it's from Kant. I told him that, but it's fine. So whichever you know source you want to take, Chomsky or Kant, both of them say it's really quite simple. If you give up on hope, the world really will go to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, if you want a simple formula, optimism is a statement about facts and hope is a possibility of changing facts. Very nice. I, I will. Let's wrap it right there on that good ending. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.